Welcome everyone to the Reproducibility Podcast. This is season two. Here today you have Sarah. I'm coming to you from St. John's. It's the ancestral homelands of the Othuk, and the island of Newfoundland is part of the traditional territories of the Mi'kmaq. And with me today I have a guest. Kuinor Darda is joining us. I'll let her introduce herself. Hi everyone, I'm Kuinor. I am a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And I do research on the neuroscience of art and aesthetic experiences. Um, I'm passionate about open science and uh, open access and open scholarship. Awesome. It's so great to have you on. We've been working together um, on some feminist ways of doing science. And I was really excited that you responded to the general call that we put out to invite people on the podcast to talk about whatever they are interested in, what they want to talk about. So you mentioned Open Science and the Global South. So what, yeah, the platform is yours. What do you want to tell us about Open Science and the Global South? Well, thank you uh, for having me. Um, I thought it would be nice to kind of just talk about this topic because it doesn't seem to be as talked about as I'd like it to be. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think I want to start off just by saying that the Global South is kind of a loaded term because Mm -hmm. we we think about like the Global North and the Global South and there's a bunch of countries that are in the Global North and there's a bunch of countries that are in the Global South, but they're obviously not on equal footing, not just between Mm -hmm. like Global North and South, but like within South and within North, right? So I think I want to bring up this point or kind of um, make this important or known that when we talk about the global south it's a traditional term that's being used but i also mean uh, geographically under underrepresented regions as well as um let's say low and middle income countries um and also countries with developing research ecosystems so it's kind yeah. of like a broad topic because obviously there are countries in the global south that have more developed research ecosystems than some other countries also in the global south so we can't really bunch them all up together in one group Mm-hmm, for sure. And not even just underrepresented, but historically marginalized, right? Like this is intentional and not just like some accident that happened. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, for sure. Um, and like, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of, especially within psychological sciences, right? There's a lot of talk about weird mm-hmm. and like non-weird communities and research. And I think when mm-hmm. we talk about open science or open scholarship and let's say, underrepresented regions, or like you said, historically marginalized groups. Um, We're talking not just in terms of like who or who's doing the research, but it's who is doing the research, who is the research done on, and who is the research done for, right? So there's, there's definitely this gap in terms of not just the researchers that are doing the research, but also the samples that we are using. Um, most of like 80% of the research happens just on 20% of the population. And then we're making claims about, um, you know, universal mm-hmm. truths and generalizations that don't really work because 20% of the population is not representative of 100% of the population, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, I think, within like the whole open science kind of um, field or or topic, this is especially kind of important because we talk about everything being open and accessible, but these kind of definitions aren't the same across different countries and cultures and regions, right? So we need to make sure that we're not using a one-size-fits-all approach across all these countries. Yeah, absolutely. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I read somewhere and I could not find it again, 
that open science practices originated in what we call the global south because they have less resources. And so these were ideas and concepts that were brought forward from necessity to share things openly. And the movement has been essentially co-opted by the global north. And we're all like, oh, look what we came up with. Look how great we are. It's like, well, hold on now. Where did it actually come from? So is, like, is that true? Because I, I can't find that anymore. I can't remember where I read it. And I'm like, I, I can't find it. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know. That would be my honest answer. Um, but I, I won't be surprised if it's true, right? Because there's mm. a, it's not just about open science, but I, I think across millennia, it's, it's kind of true. And there's enough evidence in many different fields, not just psychological sciences, that there's things that have been let's say, well, discovered is a big word, but, you know, people have been talking about it in the global south, to use that term, um, and it's been co-opted by the global north and said, like, oh, people give it more attention when it comes from, you know, western or global north countries or regions or researchers, um, just because I think across media, it's even true for, like, global issues, we, we just give more attention to weird issues, right? like Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic, that being the mm-hmm. weird term. Um, we just give more importance to issues that are weird, especially well, compared to non-weird issues, let's say. And it's true of open science as well, I think. Yeah. Have you how have you found that affects your work, if at all? No, that's a really good question. I think I've I mean, I come from India, so that's you know, it's a developing research ecosystem, but there's a lot of really good work that's happening in the country. Um, but I have studied like my master's and my PhD and I do my postdoc in what I would call more developed ecosystems, although that sounds terribly like wrong somehow for me to say. Um, yeah, it's like there's there's no right word for it. I could call it the global north, mm-hmm. but then I also worked in Australia. So it's kind of like the south. And then like yeah. that's why I said, I think those terms are so loaded. But I think like in my work, um, just also like with a colleague, we're doing some open science projects in India at the moment. And I think it's just so hard for all of us to kind of talk about a one-size-fits-all approach, right? So if I say something that works for me uh, in my postdoc in the U.S., it's not the same exact rule set or or uh, principles that are going to work for me when I'm in India or when I'm in a research institute in India or affiliated to a research institute in India. There's a bunch of different things that go in there. There was um, uh, There's a very interesting preprint about open science in India uh, by Professor Arul Skaria, who's a who's who's a law professor in India in Delhi, and um, that talks about like different issues that open science has within an ecosystem like India, right? So it's not just things like uh, oh let's make data open, but how are people looking at open data? Do people have the same technical skills that let's say my my lab mates have in the U.S. compared to my colleagues in India to share data on online platforms that have been founded by and advocated by Global North researchers? Do we have Mm. the same kind of access to, uh, even talking about open access, right? Do we have the same kind of accessibility? Do we have the same technological um, skills, accessibility in terms of resources available from the government as well um do we have the same kind of funding available like what what are the differences at the very root of these two countries and how can we um fit certain principles 
to both the countries, right? And then how do we make, what are the different things between those countries? I think for me personally, just kind of doing research um, in different countries has made me just very aware of like mm. some of the issues that are country specific. Um, and I don't like, I'd, I'm not coming from a position in saying, oh, like, you know, in any way, India's not great and like the US is better let's say the UK is better than India that's not what I'm saying I'm just saying the needs of both these places or all these places are very very different and there's mm-hmm. a lot of disparity there's power imbalances there's you know all kinds of things that are kind of common across countries but also not common to the same degree so I think we need to consider all these issues and I think just my work has made me more aware of all these issues across countries as well yeah, super interesting. As you're talking, I, I wondered, do you think those differences are more related to the values or the implementation of open science? Like, do you, is the impetus, are the values of open science, do you think similar across different countries? Or are those also different? Or is it just the implementation that has to be adjusted to the local? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's a really good question. It's, that's very interesting to, th- to think about as well. And some of the work that I'm doing with my colleagues in India, uh, we're trying to figure out whether people are looking at open science in the same way that people outside of India, let's say in the global north, to use that term, are looking at open science. And it's interesting because some of the work in progress or results in progress, I can say, I guess, um, is kind of showing us that attitudes toward open science are very different in India. So, for Mm. instance, some of the things, and this is kind of following on from some other literature in the global south, is that people feel threatened sometimes to um, share their data openly. So that's kind of the value system, right? Why do you not want to share data openly? And some of the reasons that people give are like, oh, what if it's kind of stolen from me? What if my ideas are stolen? So preprints, for instance, um, they don't want to put them online because they are scared that someone will steal their idea. Now, why is that value system coming in? I think that is also related to the implementation of it, right? So there's a lot of competition. There's limited funding available. Everyone wants that funding. And to kind of compete for it, there's like this mistrust among people almost in terms of like, what if the other person kind of steals what I want to do? Um, And so this kind of attitude towards making data available um, is slightly different across countries. The other thing is open access. So not all universities have the funding to provide like journal subscriptions and stuff like that. Right. Um, and that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's it's harder in a developing research ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the focus on different kinds of sciences, hard sciences get more funding, get more money. Um, this might be true across different countries. It's also true in India. Um, psychological sciences, let's say, still considered a bit of a soft science, um, doesn't mm-hmm. always get as much funding as is important. Um so I think there's there's differences in both value systems and implementation. But going back to the point of, you know, when you said uh, maybe like open science originated in the global south, I think there's definitely collaborations within India that certain collaborations that are important and easy to do. And therefore, open science practices and principles work really well in those contexts. I think it's just this kind of implementation issue, um, which 
does not always go hand in hand with the value systems. Um, the other thing is just kind of in some of the more, um, let's say, rural universities within the country. Um, and I'm being very India-specific, obviously, because that's where I come from. But I'm I'm sure this mm-hmm. is true of other low- and middle-income countries where just access to technology is really hard, right? So it's yeah. not the same across people. Um, it, it might not be the same across genders, across different marginalized communities, but also within the university, just access to basics like computers or or, or the skills required to upload your data on, say, something like the Open Science Framework or coding skills. So using R to, you know, have an openly accessible pipeline. And this is um, software that's free to use, but do we have the skills to actually use it? Um, I used to teach in a rural school and just access to computers was really hard. So trying to find one computer for 50 students, you know, that's that's the level at which we're talking about. Obviously, not all universities mm-hmm. have it. It's not the same across all institutes and countries and cities in, within India, but also outside in the global south. But these are things that sometimes we tend to forget, including myself, right? Like, I feel I'm privileged to be studying and working in an institution that provides me with all these facilities and I don't have to think twice about um, whether or not I have a computer in front of me but that's not true across different economies and and systems hopefully that you know answers your question it kind of went a little bit verbose there no absolutely I want to bring up maybe go back to this idea of being poached because I I know that in the okay I'm still using these terms global north there's essentially been like debunked, right? This idea that it's not possible for your idea to be to be taken because it would probably take too long. And like, there's a lot of reasons why that is not true. But I do wonder, yeah, like I'm glad you brought that up. Like it, it could be very different in a different context where maybe it is easier or it does happen for ideas to be stolen like that. Or I don't know if this ever happens, but like the worst case scenario is someone from the global north who has all the resources could take an idea and like just reinforce the extractivism which is super shitty but like these are things that yeah like i said we have to, we have to really think about the local context and it cannot be a one-size-fits-all right exactly and i think this idea of being poached uh, by the global north um, or like someone from the global north coming and taking ideas from the global south to use those terms again I know they're loaded um, I think that's super like I think that's happened historically and I think that's where some of the fear comes from as well right so um, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to sugarcoat it and say that oh no everyone's nice and that doesn't really happen but we all know <laughs> that it does right like people who yeah. have the power and the resources um, I mean that's that's power imbalance right there right and it doesn't have yeah. to be just global north versus global south but I think there are some power imbalances, yeah. imbalances that are different in the global north that are different in the global south um, that are culture specific, that are country specific, region specific, uh, community specific. So I think those are all things that need to be considered. Um, I think especially when it comes to also like sensitive data, you can't always make it open. And, you know, it's cultural stuff that um, can kind of interact with it that we don't always consider when we are making this one size fits all approach. Um, and the more we make these rules and make these like 
specifications that need to be there, right? Like there's this whole culture of like, yes, making everything open and accessible is awesome. Yes, it's awesome, but we need to consider it like across different communities and cultures and we can't expect that everyone does it in the same way. Because again, then what we're doing is basically just enhancing the power imbalance there. We're we're enhancing this disparity between, like it's like how in economics, the rich become richer and the poor become poorer. That's what we are doing. We don't want that, right? Yeah. We don't want to make it so that people feel scared to be part of this movement because obviously we know it has certain uh, benefits and advantages, but it's not the same across countries. It's not the same across cultures. We can't expect it to be. Hmm. I think that's what's difficult about any kind of prescribing of rules, even things like the badges, right? Like that's okay, great. There's an incentive, but like, yeah, what if you can't for whatever reason, then those who are already marginalized are even further marginalized in the system that's trying to push forward without really thinking about what effects it has. Unintended consequences, I'm sure. No one's going out intending to reinforce and aggravate systems of power but that doesn't mean it's not happening right exactly i think you worded it perfectly oh thanks (laughs) (laughs) so i guess i don't know to get a bit more difficult (laughs) what what can we do to counteract this right yeah i think one i mean there's and I'm not taking away from the brilliant researchers that have already done lots of work in the global south and, you know, have spoken very openly about open science in the global south, um, including within India. I think the first step is kind of to do more research on what are the issues and the barriers to open science and open scholarship in the global south, again, to use that term. Um I think that's just where it has to start from, like just more awareness, just more information. Um, I think the other thing is that we always tend to use principles from, let's say, weird populations or the global north and try to generalize that to the global south or to non-weird populations. I think there needs to be a drastic kind of reversal of that almost, right? There's... Mm -hmm. you just you can't just you know generalize to other people you have to also generalize from other people so there's a lot we can learn also from the global south so even i feel like even just more research on what are the barriers to open science and open scholarship in the global south can also help in understanding open science and open scholarship at a more broader scale across the world so it's not just like i'm going to pick from the global north and like try and generalize this to the global south tweak it and make it apply it's also can we have local experts from the global south being involved in this process can we find out what are the local needs in that place can we find out um who are the people we can interact with if there's you know there's a lot of non-governmental non-profit organizations that are also working on this can we get the community involved can we get the participants involved can we get researchers and experts involved can we find out what are the local needs of that place of that region of that community um you know this requires obviously a very large scale kind of um implementation but i think we can even start small right can we just collaborate with other people can we um not emphasize or not kind of have a rule that applies equally across all places without even considering that we are coming from a place of privilege and that other people may not be right 
Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I think those are just kind of starting points in my head that we can start off by doing to counteract this disparity between the global north and the global south. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to find out what would come out of a grassroots movement from the south. Like, what are what are the values that are important to communities around research? Right, what is important for research? And I, I guess I want to yeah go back to what you said before about who is the research for? And it's such an important question that we don't think about very much. I mean, in the day to day research that that I do, I know that mostly the research I do is for me and my colleagues, right? Like I'm not directly serving a population. It's, oh, there's this gap in literature and I'm interested in this question, so I'm going to do this research. But who does it serve apart from my publication list, my CV, and my colleagues who are also going to build on that, right? Like we, we do a lot of research for each other, which I don't think is inherently bad, but I would like... Personally, I want to shift more towards, okay, what do people actually want to know about like for me, music perception? Because every time I tell people I'm a music scientist, everyone's got a story. Everyone's got something because everyone, like most people, not everyone, but most people like listen to music and have experiences around music. So what do people want to know? And I think it's, it's worth asking, right? We're so isolated. And I, I wonder, yeah, how that would... What would come out of a more grassroots? What do we want to know about? How do we want to know about it? Right? What methods of dissemination work best? Peer-reviewed papers are can be quite dense depending on on the writing style, and we're encouraged to be very dense and illegible so that we know, come across almost like smarter or something. It's, it's a bit silly. Actually, I think it's very silly. <laughs> like we can't say ah, oh, you know, in this. This way of writing that is so dense and illegible is like not accessible. And who's funding our research is the public, mostly. For me. Again, I don't I don't know how it works in different areas. Like I don't know, some research is funded by like foundations or private corporations and stuff, and that's different. Um, but like my work is funded by the public. So how can I better serve? And yeah, I I'd be interested to know how how that come what comes out of, of that and what kind of principles might emerge. Yeah, and I think that's an important question, right? Like just engaging the community. And I think you brought up one uh, one thing that um, that is just like dissemination, right? Are we translating stuff? I mean, English is the mm-hmm. dominant language um, that's used in research, unfortunately, or fortunately, like, you know, I don't know. It's, yes, it's spoken by most people, but that doesn't mean that people who don't speak English or don't write in English um, can't do research like that's it's such a colonial thing and it's so annoying sometimes to get like oh you know get your english proofread by a native speaker and i'm like oh come on really that's just it's it's not fair right so i think that's also another thing that comes up in this whole global north versus global south again to use those terms um kind of debate or idea or comparison which is language can we somehow translate? Can we, um, you know, have different languages involved and engaged? Um, and asking the community, I think that's super important, right? Like we can't assume what the community wants um, just because that's a research question that we like 
you know, we have to go to the community to ask what is the local need there. And that differs between the global north and the global south, um, or like between different countries, between underrepresented regions, because we've probably not asked that question enough to geographically or traditionally or historically underrepresented communities and regions. Um, and I think that is especially important in today's world, right? Like that's that's the most important thing. Can we engage the community to do, like when we do yes. our research, we don't need, need to be isolated. We shouldn't be isolated because the whole point of doing things, and especially if you're public funded, but even if you're not, the whole point is to improve science, to make it, you know, useful and accessible. And if you like keep the public away from it, like what's the point then, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder, do you know, like, is there um, a body of research, a community of research that publishes in the various dialects of, of India? Like, does that exist? Is there literature in these languages? That's that's an excellent question. I know, for instance, like, okay, let me kind of backtrack and go to like the very historical kind of foundations of, of research. Um, a lot of research in India historically was in Sanskrit. And even within it, India, it was limited kind of to a certain group of people, let's say. Um, Sanskrit is not spoken as often, well, probably not spoken at all, except in a very, very limited areas in India. Um, and most of that literature has been translated into a bunch of different languages. Now, India, if I'm not wrong, has between 23 to 27 official languages. There's no one language in India. The business language is considered to be English just because it's surprising to a lot of people when I say that probably India uh, has more people speaking English than any other Indian language, which is because of the colonial history as well. Um, yeah. That said, I know there are people who do research in regional languages. There are people who do a lot of interesting work, especially within communities in the local language of that particular region. It's just that that research doesn't always hit the global eye because it's not in English. And so I think it's especially important within the country to kind of have this bridge between the local community work and then taking that to kind of a global stage. Now, whether we do that through the medium of English or some other medium, that's debatable because we don't always want to have research that's done in English, but obviously if it has to reach the global stage, we want it in a language that's palatable to, you know, that's palatable globally. So um, mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not aware of specific communities that do kind of like research in different dialects or languages. I know there's lots of different institutions that do research on languages and dialects and translate it. Um, I think the primary language is still English for a lot of big research institutes in India and universities in India. So I think that's still like the dominant language. Um, I do a lot of like research dissemination, which is through my dance. So there's a lot of like science concepts or papers that I explain through pictures and videos and um, I mean, it's still, you know, limited oh, it's super to... cool. <laughs> well, thank you. But it's still limited to a certain group of population who kind of understands, let's say, the dance language or like uh, a lot of my captions mm -hmm. are still in English. And I try to translate it in Marathi and like that's the, the language of the region I'm from. Um, but I think there's there's definitely a lot more that needs to be done in that area for it to be disseminated to local people and everyone in the country, right? And it has to be done in different languages, for sure. Mm -hmm. 
I wonder if we're talking about like research being done for the local community, what's the benefit or the reason to bring it to the global stage? Yeah, if it's done for the community and it's done in their language and it's done locally, like why would it need to be translated to to get to, why does it need a global audience? If it does like if it serves its purpose, why do we need it to go to a global stage? Right. That's an excellent question. I think in general, just out of um let's say the Western or Global North principles of, you know, open data, open sharing, open science. Um, those things kind of also apply in this case where we are trying to make um, what we do in a local place available for everyone across the globe. And it might be applicable in another region with a similar background. The other thing I think in today's Ooh. kind of capitalistic world, um, getting very capitalistic. Yeah, well, very yeah. capitalistic. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm of, and this is my personal opinion, right? Like, yeah. uh, I don't know how valid it is, but that's what I believe. And I think it's necessary to, like, for the global stage to kind of know what local work is being done, not just because mm. that local work can be applied in different contexts, but because, unfortunately, if that local work needs to be funded, it needs to get global attention. That's just been my experience of working in different um, regions across India and also working with, you know, non-governmental and non-profit organizations where we're trying to fight for funding. We need money mm -hmm. to run certain things. We need donations. Um, if we don't bring it to the public eye, if we don't bring it to the media, it doesn't get the attention and the money it deserves. Um, mm. And again, this is coming all from personal experience, right? But I just yeah. feel like getting global recognition is just so important when it comes to getting the funding that is required to do certain research and do certain work. And at the end of the day, the goal is to better the community and solve the problems of the community, let's say, or try to understand the community better. But we do need the money to do it, right? So the money needs to yeah. come from different sources. And when it cannot come from the local community, how do we get it? We get it from the global community, right? And by global, I mean the whole country, but also outside of the country, right? Um, and there's, you know, lots of examples of nonprofit organizations within India being funded by uh, people outside of India, for example. And the money comes from that, that goes into actually developing the community. Um, and I've worked with such organizations before. So I think if we don't publicize the work that the organizations are doing or the communities are doing, that the research is showing, how are, how are we going to get the funding for it? Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I've been I've been reading a little bit of um, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, and it talks about the, the NGO um, industrial complex. And so I, I wonder if maybe in your work or if you've heard of, of any other situations where being beholden to an organization has caused conflicts or limits in what you can do, like because they don't want you to do certain work or because they don't want to be associated with certain things. Like, has that caused any problems? Um, yes and no. So I think it's it's interesting because I know there's there's organizations that are tied to a certain kind of funding and therefore cannot do a certain kind of work. I just haven't personally worked. Um, mm. in those organizations so I can't I can't really I don't think I'm an expert or I I'm justified enough to say things um, about that but you know I think it's it's true of research in general right and I, I don't see why that's not true of you know local 
non-profit or non-governmental organizations working with industries um, in terms of like who is funding let's say the research and what's the research question asking and I know there's a there's been a lot of this debate around the whole tobacco industry for instance like research on tobacco um, and research on marijuana being funded by industries that have a conflict of interest basically right so mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of a different research topic, but it's still like the principle still applies when we talk about research on communities, right? So if there's a particular organization kind of funding that research, um, they probably want a certain picture to be portrayed um, with that research question and the work it's showing. So I think it's always a very um, precarious situation. Um, I think a lot of organizations, at least some of the the organizations I've worked with in in India, have always been in need of the funding. So, you know, there's compromises that happen uh, in terms of what can be done and what work can be done. But that doesn't mean that work doesn't happen, right? So Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm answering your question at all in this case. Yeah, I just think it's something interesting to talk about just because I've been reading about it a little bit recently. I have this idea of like who you're accountable to and how might that limit what you do. This is, applies especially to, to activism. Okay, so the organization that I'm a part of, the Social Justice Cooperative of Newfoundland and Labrador, we only fund activities through specific grants or maybe corporate grants or government money. But our core funding comes only from grassroots so that we are not beholden to anybody, so that... We don't have to compromise on anything. That's a choice that we made because we can, right? And that's not a choice that I know can always be made. But I mean, even reading in this this book that, I, that I'm reading, there are examples of grassroots work that took almost no money. But like, you don't actually need money to do this stuff, which is really interesting. I'm only like a couple of chapters in, so maybe there, there's more coming because like, it's hard to imagine, you know, how. But if you have the skills, the community, and people willing to give time, like it's possible to do a lot without any kind of money. Right. That's interesting. It's really hard to imagine. Uh, yeah. It's hard to get around, right? Like like you say, that's it's the, the whole power dynamic is like ingrained in this. Like you need funding. So who do you have to like bow down to essentially, right? Like who do you have to, what do you have to compromise in order to get the funding to do the work? And it, it just perpetuates that system of power, that power imbalance. So, and like, yeah, so what, mm, it's hard to know, like, what can you do to, to minimize the power imbalance? I don't want to say erase, because that's really, really difficult and probably impossible, because there's always going to be different power imbalances, whatever they are. But like, how, how can we minimize those power imbalances? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a really interesting question. <laughs> Yeah, it's a big question, right? Um, yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, like, what can we do without money, you know? I mean, I, I have this very naive belief about the world that if only everyone was, like, 10% kinder, the, the world would be a much better place. And being kind doesn't really require money. Uh, but then I know people who will kind of oppose that and say, no, but if you want to, like, I don't know, give someone some money, you're being kind, but then you're giving someone some money. So you need the money to be kind and it's yeah it's you know it's a privilege I think also um I don't know what the solution is to reduce the power imbalances 
um i mean i'm also thinking in terms of like what what's the kind of let's say let's let's come back to research and say what's the kind of research that i can do in a community where i have limited funding let's say and i'm trying to do research and answer a research question i mean i've done a lot of cross cultural work and one thing that i've always noticed is that i'm funded by an institution or a funding body in the global north and i can afford to pay people to take part in my research just the basic they're spending 1 hour of their time and i'm let's say collecting 300 people in india they're paid rupees 500 which is the equivalent of let's say 5 um pounds or about 6 7 8 dollars something like that i may be wrong with that but some something around that ballpark right and then i have the money to give them that's why i get my participants but i've also in many other situations especially when i've been collaborating uh with my colleagues in india uh tried to get participants and not had the money to pay them and then that definitely reduces the people who are participating in my research one they're only the people that can afford to spend one hour of their time and participate in my research without getting paid for it so i'm already targeting like this this more pri- privileged crowd so there's already an imbalance there in the people oh. i'm collecting data mm-hmm. from if i'm not paying them right so i think there's you know there's a bunch of problems there and i just can't wrap my head around the fact that okay there might be some research that i might be able to do or some work that i might be able to do that does not require money but then if that doesn't require money am i already perpetuating some kind of imbalance in that say my sample oh. that i am testing mm. or the people i'm working for or how can we make then that self sustainable like how do we get to the point where we don't need money for it but that would imply that you know people don't have the need for that money which isn't true it's it's just not true at least not in my experience so um i know i've touched on a bunch of different things here across like what i've said but yeah i just i don't know what the solution is to that and, mm-hmm. and yeah i i don't have answers yeah. i just have more questions <laughs> <laughs> they're big big questions right that it this all plays into these global systems of power that like you can't just get away from you you can't it's it's a really complicated world to live in and we have to compromise in all sorts of ways and it's not about being black and white and i think that's really important to think about right like no matter what your ethics or politics are you're probably going to have to compromise somewhere because there is no way to really be black and white and if there is then you are extremely privileged right like as 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 soon as you you lose any of that then you you have to you have to navigate you have to compromise and that that's a really interesting i think concept and i've i've not yet had to face myself i have an incredible amount of privilege very aware of that and i'm i'm sure there are still more aspects of privilege that will be discovering over time and just like seeing it over and over again but i saw this really great talk on incommensurability of ethics by um someone who was a, a senior admin a researcher here who was indigenous who had a position of senior administration in the university so um along with the paper you mentioned a couple of things well uh, I'll link that in the in the show notes so you can you can check it out it was a really great talk and really interesting discussion of yeah like what do you do when you have to compromise your politics and how do you do that and where do you like, pick your battles right and how do you navigate that yeah Yes, yeah. tough questions, tough questions. I mean, yeah. 
And wow. like you said about privilege, I think, yeah, I know I am privileged for sure, even um, in some cases that, that I'm not even aware of. So I think it's like privilege is so many levels and it's so loaded, the term in general. I think that's, yeah, something mm-hmm. we all need to be kind of aware of. Um, um, yeah, I don't know if that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think it's interesting you mentioned like, yeah, who who can come in to do research? Because I know that for some of the work that I've done on the more the more activist side, for sure, around like plastic pollution and recycling, you know, we had a survey to go around households and we want to know what kind of things people are throwing out. But like anyone who is working multiple jobs and just trying to survive does not have the headspace to worry about plastic pollution. And that is absolutely fair. Like they shouldn't, they shouldn't have to, they shouldn't have to be struggling to survive, but they are. And so whatever work we do, the sample is always biased. So it's it's hard to get a really truly representative sample of what's going on. Because even if you pay, like, are you paying more than minimum wage? Maybe, maybe not, right? Like for us, I think the standard rate's like $10 an hour, which is less than minimum wage because it's not supposed to be an incentive where people will compromise themselves in order to get money. It's supposed to be a just like, here, thanks for your time. So finding that balance, right? It's like, okay, yeah, we want to pay them so they can, if they have to take time off work, but not so much that people put themselves into situations where they're uncomfortable for the money. But it's then, yeah, how do you get those representative populations? And that's why most of our samples are like college students, right? Like you don't get the lower income people who are living in social housing to come in to do psychology research. Like that's not, you don't, you're not going to get those people. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's, that's an important question, right? Like who are we reaching? How do we get to that sample? Like do they even have the time to spend on doing tasks for us that, they probably think is like, what am I doing with this reaction time stuff? Or like, you know, I'm clicking buttons. I'm, in my research, we're looking at paintings. And I think, and this is a, it's a very political statement as well. I think art is a luxury. Art is political. It can't not be. And so when I'm asking some people to come and like look at images of artworks on the screen, do people really care if, if their thoughts are about like, how do I survive? Do they want to look at artworks? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But like, what are we paying them? What are they doing it for? I think those motivations are also so important. And like, we need to consider them. And the other thing I feel in terms of just like reach and accessibility and like trying to get people involved in conversations and research is I was reading this email um, at Penn where I'm working currently which said something like, you know, they had some mentorship programs for undergraduate students. It was kind of tailored to underrepresented communities and minorities um, and people who were not as privileged, let's say. Um, and as as I was reading this email, it struck me that even like being at Penn and reading this email is my privilege, right? Like I get to, I get this mentorship opportunity because I have... I am here, I'm at Penn. And the people reading this email, the undergraduates, they understand English, they have access to this email, they have access to the facilities like a, like an Ivy League university like Penn provides them, right? What about all the other people who don't have access to this? Like within this privileged group, we're still trying to target underrepresented minorities and communities. And that's super important. Like I'm not taking away from the importance of that. But then how do we reach people who don't have even that 
basic privilege, that access to that email, right? And like my part of it was to then like open up on my Instagram and say I'm open to chats and like if anyone wants any help, mentorship, whatever, just to chat about like education outside of India, for instance, or within India, higher education, post-grad degrees, graduation degrees, whatever it is. Um, I opened it up and I had like 27 emails the the first few days when I opened that conversation. Um, and I still realized that even those people who were getting in touch with me were people who had access to social media and had access to the mm-hmm. internet, had access, my post was in English. They had access to English as a language. They understood it. You know, like there's so many layers of privilege. Like I gave a talk a couple of years ago at a school in a rural town in in my state in India. And a lot of people, like the whole talk was in Marathi, which is the language of the region. Um, And I just realized that there's so much potential that can be tapped, but like language can be a barrier. Just not knowing about opportunities and resources is a barrier. Like just so many, again, levels to go through and so many access and levels of privilege that I became aware of about myself as well, but also what... Like, what are the things that we can do to reach this this kind of population, this grassroots population, right, as you said? And it's it's so hard to reach them sometimes because their thoughts aren't about, like, oh, can I do this research? Or, like, I'm interested in this topic. It's more about what am I eating today? Do I have the money to eat today? It's like day-to-day survival. It's it's very different from the kind of problems that we have, right? So I'm veering off, I think, from, from the topic a little bit, but I think it's just... <laughs> kind of getting access to that population is important also, but how we do it is kind of a question. Absolutely. I think to, to venture like a, a very imperfect solution, it's, I, yeah, the focus on the local, I think is so important. We talked about it a little bit of just like things rooted in the locality. What are the local needs? If the local needs are food, like, okay, how do we meet that, that need? I like universal basic income for, for some context. <laughs> I think that should exist in, in, in my province and in, in my country. Um, but that might not be possible everywhere. You know, it's what what are the needs and how do we meet the needs locally? And it's navigating the systems of power and equity that you live in to get access to that, right? Like even getting food, it's like, okay, how do I access the food market? And where, who are the farmers? And how, how is that working, right? Like maybe I can't grow food locally because of where I live or because the environment's been degraded or because there's a drought or like whatever, right? Because of all of these fucking global systems of, of, of power that are happening. Whew. So I don't know. I guess it, it's, it's a mix of local and global. I, d- I don't know. Like how do, we, how do we integrate those two levels in a way that best serves the locality without focusing too much on the global because I mean globalization I've read this somewhere and I was like yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's just a nice term for imperialism really so like is that really what, what we want <laughs> or like you, you can't cut yourself off entirely from from the global community in the way that like it's just so insidious now and you can't escape it but how can we shift more focus towards the locality and local solutions for the local people yeah i don't think I have an answer to that question. No, I was like, that was more of a rhetorical question. <laughs> I don't think any of us has the answer. I don't think we should, right? Because it's a locally, it's local problems, local solutions. Like no one has the answer. 
So it's really hard to talk about these things, right? Like I get a lot of it, you know, feedback of like, oh, they're giving us like a concrete example. Get, tell us what to do. And I'm like, yeah, but I can't. <laughs> like I, I, by definition, I can't. And I know that's really hard to hear and hard to read. And, you know, it sort of leaves you with this, this feeling of helplessness. But I think it's okay to sit in that for a bit and get used to that and be like, yeah, what does this feel like? And what am I going to do about it? You know? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm always the person who's kind of like the more practical kind of efficiency oriented, right? Like, what's the action points here? What, what, what can I do next? Like, I need, I need some, you know, just some action points, just some rules that I can follow and I can like, um, get things done. But I think these questions are just so tricky and complicated. I think there are some small things that we can do, right? Like there's definitely uh, more awareness, um, definitely not kind of uh, enforcing this one-size-fits-all approach and taking local needs and local experts into consideration. I think those are things that that people are already doing that we should need, we should definitely do more of. Um, but it's also a case by case basis, right? Like it's so subjective. It's it has to be um, evaluated on a case by case basis. There's no like global rule that fits everyone and is like the best no. thing to do or anything of that sort. So, yeah, coming to terms with that uncertainty is also, I think, important. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot so far. Is there anything that you want to share to wrap up is it like maybe one key message or maybe a little summary of what, what we discussed that you want to share with the listeners um that's always a good question i feel because well good question but um it's i don't know if i have one message i think we started off with global south and open science and i had some things um in in my head that were related to that but we kind of weird off on a lot of other related topics, um, obviously, but I think what I have found most kind of important for me and helpful for me in general kind of goes away from like just doing research. I think it's just conversation, um, just talking to people, just opening up my mind and my my social media to be more practical, but just kind of opening up and saying, hey, if you have a question, let's chat. If you have an answer, let's chat. If you have a need, let's chat. If you have an idea, let's chat. Um, I think all of that, being mentored by some amazing people and mentoring some students and just kind of talking with people has opened like my vision and my eyes uh, to sound very dramatic, but it's it's like <laughs> an honest thing, right? Like it's just made me aware of my own privilege. It's made me aware of like, what are the other needs and what are the other things that can be done and what are the things that still need to be done and haven't been done? Um, I think just, yeah, just have a conversation, just have a chat with people, uh, be aware of your own privilege. I think that's the only like message I have. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to sound like a preacher, so <laughs> I'm going to stop here. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing everything you have. It was really great talking with you about this speaking of having open social media and open access where can we find you on on the internet uh twitter facebook instagram twitter and instagram so instagram is where i do a lot of science communication um twitter lots of academia related stuff is already there um yeah my username is my name koinur darda 
So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And my email, my inbox is always open for any questions, anything. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for for sharing all of this with uh, us here at Predisability Podcast. It was really a pleasure to have you on. So we're going to sign off. Uh, for this episode. If you are interested in starting a reproducibility community in your area, check out our website, reproducibility.org. If you want to come onto the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at reproducibility or any of the hosts. I'm at Sarah underscore Sove. Uh, So yeah, until next time. Bye. You listen to Reproducibility Season 2, Episode 9 with special guest Kuinor Dada. You can find her social media profiles linked in the description down below. Your host this episode was Sarah Sowe, who you can find on Twitter at Sarah underscore Sowe. This episode was produced by Sarah Sowe and edited by Sarah Sowe and Jan Vornhagen. For more information, visit reproducibility.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.